I'm the Woodmother, and this is Woodmother's Workshop, a low-budget, low-effort, low-quality practice podcast that I'm using to build my writing and audio production skills and document my research for a story I'm writing called Gate City Blues. Each week, I try to give an update on the technical side of things, how my podcast setup has improved, what I've learned so far, all that stuff. And a few weeks ago, I told you guys that I had submitted an application for a micro-grant for podcasters of color through I Need Diverse Games and the McElroy Brothers. Unfortunately, I wasn't selected, but one of my friends, Lucas Ryan, was so kind as to gift me a Blue Yeti Nano microphone. That's almost exactly the same kind of microphone I would have won if I had been selected. This week is my first time using it, and it's required me to change up my setup a little bit. Up to this point, I've just been recording into my iPad because my laptop is just not reliable. But my new microphone uses a USB plug, so I have two options. I could either use my husband's less noisy laptop with the microphone and then figure out how to use Audacity and edit it on the laptop as well, or I could use a USB to lightning port adapter so that I can still record and edit on my iPad. That is what I'm doing right now. I just got my adapter in the mail today and we're going to see how this works out. Next week I might try recording on his laptop to see if it makes a difference. I also want to update you on my research plans. Last week, I talked a lot about the first half of the book Prohibition in Atlanta by Mary O. Boyle and Ron Smith, and this week we're going to continue. But I also wanted to explain how my research strategy has been evolving lately. I originally planned to read the books on my list in a roughly chronological order, starting with the late 1800s and working my way forward through history and ending with the Harlem Renaissance. But over the past few days, I've been talking with some folks who are experienced podcast producers, and they were telling me that if I want to launch Gate City Blues in August, I should get started writing and recording as soon as possible. I won't be able to just go one week at a time like I've been doing with this podcast, and I even skipped last week. An audio drama requires a lot more editing and planning. Even though the historical context of vaudeville and prohibition are important for the world-building aspect of the story and helping the setting feel fully realized and immersive, they don't actually contribute all that much to Cora's narrative voice. Because the story will be written in first person from Cora's perspective, the events of the Harlem Renaissance are what has had the biggest impact on her writing style and her relationships with the folks that she's writing letters to, because she just left New York to come to Atlanta, so all of that will have still been fresh on her mind. I kept thinking that I needed to have all this research completed before I started writing. I kept making imaginary obstacles and pushing the actual writing of the story farther and farther back. But I don't need to know everything about Cora's backstory or even the backstory of Atlanta before I start writing her story. All I need to know is who she is in 1928. Heck, she doesn't know the entire history of Atlanta or vaudeville before the story starts. She arrives in Atlanta as more or less an outsider, and she learns about the city and the entertainment scene little by little as she interviews people. So I can focus on getting to know her as a character first, so that I can actually start writing her letters, and then I'll worry about researching various historical topics as they come up along the way. I also don't necessarily need to read each book cover to cover. I can just use them for reference. I finally got the book I've had my eye on, Ragged But Right, by Doug Seroff and Lynn Abbott, and it's written like a textbook. I don't need to read all 400 pages before I move on with my research. I can just use it for reference and look up what I need. That feels really counterintuitive to my completionist mindset, but I know it's going to streamline my process a whole lot. 
It feels a little bit like progressing to the next zone of a video game before you've collected all the coins or smashed all the pots. But I need to ask myself what's more important to me. Becoming an expert in the comprehensive history of the blues or writing a compelling fiction story in a timely fashion. The next books I'm going to focus on are actually collections of letters. The first is Zora Neale Hurston, A Life in Letters, and the second is Remember Me to Harlem, which is a collection of letters written between Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten. Because my story is going to be told primarily in the form of letters that Cora writes to her friends, including Zora, Langston, and Carl, studying their letters to each other will help me figure out the actual structure and tone of her letters, as well as giving me some context for their relationships to each other. Ultimately, my greatest priority at this point is finding Cora's voice. Once I have her voice, I can actually start writing. And that's kind of an intimidating thought, but I'm going to have to jump in eventually. I can't just research forever, not if I want this story to be ready by August. So, as I said before, I finished Prohibition in Atlanta this week, and I tried to finish that smarmy vaudeville book, No Applause, Just Throw Money, but ultimately I decided it wasn't worth it, and I just gave up. Since I'm specifically trying to study vaudeville through a black lens, Ragged But Right is going to serve my research purposes a lot better. My main character did grow up on the white vaudeville circuit because her father was a famous white magician, but that aspect of her backstory isn't going to come up at the beginning of the story. It's not going to come up until maybe a quarter of the way through, so I can always come back to that research later. I also read through the second half of Zora Neale Hurston's anthropological work, Mules and Men. I focused on the chapters about hoodoo, but I'll come back and go through part one later, which is dedicated to folktales. Next week, I'll talk some more about Zora Neale Hurston, but for now, as promised, let's dive back into Prohibition in Atlanta. When we left off last time, Georgia had voted to go dry in 1907 in the aftermath of the Atlanta race riot of 1906. A major contributing factor leading to the white mob attacking black citizens is the fear-mongering and yellow journalism surrounding Decatur Street, which was Black Atlanta's entertainment district, and was perceived to be a hotbed of vice and crime and immorality. But black folks weren't the only patrons of Decatur Street. It was actually Atlanta's only integrated district, and was home to a wide variety of immigrants— Chinese, German, Greek, Russian, and Syrian immigrants all lived and worked alongside Atlanta's black population. Religious minorities such as Jews, Catholics, and Lutherans were common there as well, and they were especially targeted by the prohibitionist camp because their cultural and religious practices did not condemn alcohol the way the Protestant majority did. Their European and now Euro-American social culture accepted alcohol in moderation and even mandated it for some religious ceremonies. In fact, many of those immigrants were employed by the beverage alcohol industry. German Americans, for example, had popularized beer drinking in the United States, and they made up the majority of the employees at brewing and bottling companies, both in Atlanta and around the country. Prohibition in Atlanta tells us one of the most common Decatur Street occupations was that of saloonist. It is thought that Russian Jews constituted half of Decatur Street's saloonists by 1905. Besides being liberal toward alcohol consumption, these immigrant groups held a socially progressive view of race relations. Many saloon owners ran integrated saloons until the Atlanta race riot. As Jim Crow laws strengthened after the riot, many Jewish operators ran colored-only saloons. Now, there were some seedy elements around Decatur Street. 
it was home to Atlanta's red light district, and some criminal activity was to be expected, but the living hellhole described by evangelical Protestants is simply not supported by historical data. In fact, the area was popular with tourists who were looking for some excitement, but it was also a thriving, multiracial, multicultural, and international business district. It's no surprise that the white Protestant prohibitionists couldn't stand it. Just like Harlem brought together a wide variety of people crammed tightly into an urban crucible where new art and ideas could evolve at lightning speed, Decatur Street was an incubator for the New South. Ron Smith also writes, The Dries failed to take into account any social factors other than alcohol and wickedness that led people there. The saloons and dance halls, however, provided immigrants and African Americans with something that the rest of Atlanta seemed to deny them, a sense of community. So we can see that anti-alcohol and anti-black sentiment was closely intertwined. Following the 1906 race riot, Governor Hoke Smith passed a bill in 1907 for statewide prohibition. Smith had actually campaigned on the promise that he would disenfranchise black voters, and that's exactly what he did. In the same month that he signed the Prohibition Bill into law, Smith also signed an act that would amend Georgia's constitution and impose a literacy test as a requirement for voting. Because this also stripped many poor whites of the right to vote, there were provisions that would let whites still vote even if they failed the literacy test. For example, any Union or Confederate veteran or their descendants could vote. Many white Georgians had grandfathers in the Confederate Army, so this became known as the Grandfather Clause. In theory, the literacy test was meant to apply to all Georgia citizens, but in practice it was only enforced for black citizens, effectively stripping them of their guaranteed right to vote. This wouldn't be overturned until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. That's almost 60 years later. In the years following the 1907 Prohibition Bill, Georgia found itself in a precarious position as state laws and federal laws contradicted each other. Even before statewide prohibition, Georgia had its fair share of illegal moonshine distilleries up in the North Georgia mountains. Even before alcohol as a whole became outlawed, it was still illegal to operate a distillery without paying the necessary taxes. Liquor taxes were a huge source of revenue for the federal government, especially in the decades following the Civil War. This anecdote from Prohibition in Atlanta explores the ways in which this led to a conflict that mirrored the South's frustration surrounding states' rights versus federal, read Northern, interference. During Georgia's state prohibition years, moonshine and all other distilled spirits became illegal. Federal tax collectors were frustrated with the state's prohibition laws. Their duty was to license stills and collect federal taxes. Many revenue agents providing federal liquor licenses to distillers refused to share license information with the state as evidence on which the retailer would be convicted under state law. The prohibitionists were infuriated with this withholding of evidence, which seemed to defy the state law. Shaping the 18th Amendment highlights a particular clash between federal officials and the state prohibition law in 1909. The Curitan Distillery in Rising Fawn, Georgia, fun fact, My honeymoon was near there. (laughs) The Curitan Distillery in Rising Fawn was operating despite prohibition law. It had followed all federal alcohol laws, which meant that a federal official gauged the amount of alcohol produced. When the federal gauger refused to testify against the distillery, a local judge had him incarcerated. The official's boss, located in Atlanta, sent a telegram to the incarcerated man telling him that the district attorney advised him not to testify. 
Upon reading this telegram, the judge ruled the federal boss in contempt of court and had him arrested by the sheriff of Fulton County. During an Associated Press interview, the judge pointed to the injustice of a federal officer aiding and abetting a wildcat distillery in the dry state of Georgia. The federal gauger was ultimately released from jail, and his Atlanta-based boss was released on the threat of a U.S. Army cavalry troop being sent to remove him from jail. Member of the Georgia Assembly and temperance leader Seaborn Wright used this incident as an example of diminished states' rights and called for a restructuring of the federal government's policy toward dry states. Now, most moonshine was clear whiskey, known as white lightning, and it had a high proof or high alcohol content. Corn whiskey had become a staple not only in the Appalachian mountain chain, but also all over the south, and it was clear because it wasn't barrel-aged. For one, barrels were expensive, and the aging process required storage space and time. There were some urban and suburban distilleries that managed to barrel-age their whiskey in secret, but the majority of the whiskey that could be found in Atlanta came from out of town. Understandably, quite a profitable black market was built around this white lightning whiskey. Since speakeasies and bootleggers were often referred to as blind tigers, crime bosses in the whiskey wars were known as tiger kings. (laughs) That's really funny. And two of the most prominent during the 1910s were Dan King Shaw, who was charismatic and likable, and Hub Tally, who was volatile and violent. Instead of getting into gang shootouts like later prohibition crime bosses like Al Capone were wont to do, their factions mostly waged war by turning in evidence against the others to try to get them arrested. Snitches. Tally, for example, was arrested more than 40 times. These Tiger Kings employed whole teams to transport moonshine from the mountains into Atlanta, frequently smuggling jugs of white lightning in the back of farm carts, a process known as tripping. Things changed dramatically in the year 1917, both in Georgia and for the rest of the nation as a whole. Up until that point, the focus had been mainly on the prohibition of selling alcohol. Citizens were still permitted to own alcohol in their private homes, but all that changed with the bone-dry law which was signed into immediate effect on March 28, 1917. The following day, the Atlanta Constitution headline declared, Georgia now driest state in the country. The article went on to state that every Georgia citizen who has a drop of liquor, beer, or other intoxicant in his possession is a violator of the law. Prohibition in Atlanta goes on to say, Georgia prohibitionists could obviously strengthen the law all they wanted, What they could not seemingly do is get citizens to stop producing or drinking beverage alcohol. According to the Georgia State Capitol Historic American Buildings Survey, six days after the Bone Dry Law went into effect, a female clerk watched a young couple casually pass a quart jar between themselves on the third floor of the Georgia State Capitol building. According to the eyewitness account, the smell of moonshine lingered in the hallway for a long time. Now, that happened six days after the bone-dry bill, but something far more significant happened only nine days after the bone-dry bill. On April 6, 1917, Congress voted to declare war on Germany, officially entering World War I. For the past few years since the war had started, there had been a steady rise in anti-German sentiment throughout the U.S. And, if you recall, German immigrants had been a principal labor force in the beer industry. 
Just like anti-alcohol ideology had been tied to anti-blackness a decade earlier, now the prohibition movement became intertwined with anti-immigration. Coincidentally, over the past few weeks during my TikTok Live read-alouds from the book The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter, we've been talking a lot about the hostility towards Eastern and Southern European immigrants in the 1910s. Many of them were forced to take intelligence tests at Ellis Island that are reminiscent of the literacy tests imposed on black would-be voters in the South. Germans had been considered an acceptable form of immigrant, compared to Russians and Italians, for example, for the past few decades at that point, but the Great War saw that trend begin to reverse. The USA's involvement in World War I gave the Dry Party the ammunition they needed to push towards nationwide prohibition. In December 1917, Congress introduced a prohibition amendment. This proposed 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution was constructed by the Anti-Saloon League of America and its political allies. On June 26, 1918, Georgia became the 13th state to ratify the Prohibition Amendment. Seven months later, ratification was complete when the 36th state, Nebraska, ratified the amendment, and the amendment was scheduled to go into effect on January 17, 1920. The day before, on January 16th, there was a huge parade in Atlanta hosted by the Anti-Saloon League, the WCTU, and others to celebrate nationwide prohibition. One of these temperance-minded groups, who had just been reorganized in Atlanta just five years earlier, was the KKK, of course. At midnight, in the center of Five Points, a towering effigy of John Barleycorn, the fabled spirit of alcohol, was placed on top of a funeral pyre containing an illegal moonshine still. Leaders and citizens poured contraband whiskey onto the pyre as the crowd cheered. At 12.01 a.m. on January 17th, as mandated by the 18th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, the country was declared dry. That sounds like the absolute worst New Year's Eve ball drop I can possibly think of, but it's a really powerful image. John Barleycorn burned in effigy in the center of a cheering crowd. What an eerie image. Now, unlike Atlanta's first prohibition in 1885, this was assumed to be permanent. At this point in history, no constitutional amendment had ever been repealed. And the Dries figured it was only a matter of time until the vast majority of Americans were completely abstinent from alcohol and the lawbreakers were in jail where they would be dry until rehabilitated. They genuinely believed that making alcohol illegal would mean that people stopped drinking completely. But that's not what happened, obviously. Under the 18th Amendment, buying, trading, or gifting alcohol was forbidden. Importing and transporting alcohol within the United States was not allowed either, as was shipping liquor through the mail. Possessing liquor in any public area, including seemingly private spaces such as hotel rooms, was also illegal. Liquor advertisements were forbidden under the Volstead Act, which was an act passed by Congress in 1919 to strengthen the 18th Amendment. Buying and selling of formulas or recipes for homemade liquors were also forbidden. But technically, personal ownership of beverage alcohol was allowed with no quantity limits. A person could drink in the privacy of his home and in the home of his friends. And if a person moved, he could apply for a permit to move his liquor. But Georgia was still under the bone-dry law, so once again, Georgia faced the tricky situation of having state laws and federal laws that contradicted each other. So apparently in Georgia, you could be charged with both a violation of the Volstead Act, which was federal, 
and the Georgia bone dry law, and there was a lot of confusion over whether the federal or state prohibition laws superseded. There was also a lot of scarcity in funding for the law enforcement at all levels, so even though there were a lot of arrests, it was hard to successfully prosecute, especially because juries became increasingly disinterested in finding the perpetrators guilty. Can you imagine, like, being arrested for a prohibition violation and all the jury members were like, nah, this isn't worth it. You can, you can go. Now, next week, we're going to come back to Decatur Street and explore the relationship between moonshine and the Atlanta blues scene, as well as the societal changes that led to the repeal of the 18th Amendment in 1934. And that will close out this section on the book Prohibition in Atlanta. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and pass my hat and hope you toss some coins my way. So, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and Patreon as The Woodmother, all one word. If you want some cool Woodmother merch, you can buy a sticker from my Etsy shop. They were designed by my friend Lucas Ryan, the same one who gave me my new microphone. Thanks, Lucas! You can find him on Instagram at LucasRyanimated. It's spelled like Lucas Ryan, but with an imated, you know, like animate it you get it <laughs> i also want to say thank you to everyone who's purchased books for my amazon wish list recently i just got zora and langston a story of friendship and betrayal and black herman's secrets of magic mystery and ledger domain from j midnight i got wayward lives beautiful experiments and zora neale hurston a life in letters from kirsten veltman Remember Me to Harlem, The Letters of Langston Hughes and Carl Van Vechten, from Paul Goode, and Bull Daggers, Pansies, and Chocolate Babies, from an anonymous TikTok fan. That's like six entire books, all in the past few days. Thank you guys so much for all your support. This project literally wouldn't exist without these books for my research, and I would never have been able to get all of these books on my own if it weren't for the contributions of my beloved followers and Patreon patrons. Speaking of Patreon, if you'd like to subscribe to me, you'll get access to my Woodmother's Cottage Discord server, which, in addition to being a great community full of very cool people, is where I've been writing all of my research notes in a log and I regularly chat about my story progress. I've linked it down in the description below, as well as the link to my wish list. Now you know what usually comes after the little past the hat section, but this week we don't have a proper society slant. Probably because Lucius Jones was so busy running his party that he had been telling us so much about. But in the December 11th, 1931 issue of the Atlanta Daily World, there is a series of reviews of the society slants. So we get to see what everybody else in the community thought of Lucius's work. In order to pad out the section, since the review column isn't quite as long as a usual society slant, I flipped through the pages of that same issue to see what other interesting things were happening that week. And you would not believe the blurb I found. Langston Hughes, Morehouse guest. Langston Hughes, internationally known poet, will arrive in the city early Monday as the guest of the students of Morehouse College. While in the city, Mr. Hughes will be the guest of Reverend W.H. Thurman, 53 Ashby Street. On Wednesday, December 16th at 8 p.m. in Sale Hall Chapel, Morehouse Campus, Mr. Hughes will present a lecture, a recital of his poetry. The public is cordially invited to enjoy this recital. There will be no charge for admission. Fancy that! 
I'll check future issues of the newspaper next week so I can give you guys an update. And now, Society Slants Lauded. Editor's note, according to Mr. Shepard Turner, who seems to be quite a reader of the Atlanta world, Society Slants is a big favorite with practically everyone he knows. He submits below some comments he has heard from time to time about the column. It's a pity that our good friend Shep couldn't spend his time more wisely. <laughs> the first thing I read when I get a world is Society Slants. I was sorry to hear that it would appear only on Sundays. I am glad Mr. Scott has it started back three times each week. Louise Mitchell Society Slants is good, all right. Nobody denies that. But I thought that, being a frat man, Lucius would have carried a special feature of frat and sorority doings in his column. As for general information, we away from home get a liberal education in the doings of Atlanta society from following the column. C. Benjamin Brown, Principal, Bowley Junior High in Bowley, Oklahoma. Wow! We're getting issues of the Atlanta Daily World all the way out in Oklahoma. I do not know of a single co-ed who does not read Lucius's society column or slants when she can get a paper. That's Louise Fry. When the West Side Gang gets the world each issue, all the jokers say, Let's see what the maniac is saying today. That's James Hembry. I see now more people are calling Lucius Jones the maniac, and it's no longer just a nickname he gave himself to refer to himself in third person. That's nice. It's always a little sad when you're the only one that uses a nickname for yourself. We hope Lucius keeps on writing his social column after he graduates in June. Minnie Calloway So many people read Lucius for his society slants that they overlook the fact that he's one of the section's best and most progressive sports writers. G. R. Higginbotham the style in which Society Slants is written is a popular one, not too rhetorical, never too slangy. People like to experience thrills from their readings. Study Jones's emotional appeal, and you will learn the secret of why hundreds of people are reading the world. J. Neil Montgomery Old Lucius can really draw crowds to dances. Always it's the better class of people. Nothing ever happens to spoil the fun. I have seen Jesse O. Thomas, Dr. Bowden, Dr. Holmes, and many other big shots at his affairs. Thomas Borders When I read either Lucius's society or sports column, I like to recall that I used to teach and work with him in the interest of the high Y movement. C.N. Cornell I looked it up and the high Y movement was a program through the YMCA. Now this one's probably my favorite. Man, if I could write like that maniac, I couldn't get a size 10 hat on my head. But the old maniac still wears a 7. <laughs> Grady Brooks Sunset Park knows better than any place else or anyone else what Lucius's write-ups can do. I have kept check on them, and five I have in mind drew 356, 459, 378, and 291 patrons. The first four crowd were 25-cent folks. The last crowd, last Saturday night, was paying 40 cents. Sam R. Speed. Now, Sunset Park was a little amusement park with a Ferris wheel and arcade that was on the same property as Sunset Casino. 
it was like the only black amusement park in the city. That maniac can go. I've been telling all the fellows to call him the Black Walter Winchell, and he's got O.O. McIntyre dead on the spot. Shepard Turner. Man, I love Shepard Turner. Now thus ends this week's Society Slant, but before we close out, I want to draw attention to the fact that we now know a little bit more information about Lucius Jones. I had previously thought that perhaps he started working full-time for the Atlanta World Paper after he graduated from high school, but now we know that not only did he attend college, but he was set to graduate in the spring of 1932. If you recall, I was planning to write him in as a character in Gate City Blues, which begins in August 1928, which would make him a freshman at college. I still don't know which school he went to. It could have been Morehouse, Brown, or Atlanta University. But knowing that he was enrolled in college will help me figure out exactly how he ties into Cora's adventures. All right, everybody, thus ends the episode. Thank you to Soraya Peregrine for writing and performing the theme song. Don't forget to follow me on all my other social media, subscribe to my Patreon, and I haven't mentioned this before, but please leave a positive review for the show on the podcatcher of your choice. That will really help me out. All right, farewell, everybody. And as always, keep eyes and ears peeled for further developments.